If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I receive mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, and of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your anointing, that you anoint the preaching of your word as we gather, Lord, under your word. Grant me as your servant, Lord God, the ability to preach your word in such a way that your people will hear and see you through your preached word. In the powerful name of Jesus, through his grace, we pray. Amen. If you could testify to your child and articulate the most important aspects of your faith and why you choose to follow Jesus, what would you say? No, seriously, what would you lay down or what did you lay down as foundational to your child's spiritual awareness and need for the Savior? How would you guard their heart and their mind knowing what they're up against in our culture today? The fact that they're up against a world that is anti-God, a world of Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat. Such was the case here with the Apostle Paul, who gave testimony to his young protege, Timothy, in the ministry. Affectionately, he called him my true child in the faith. And he had a twofold reason for writing this letter to young Timothy. First, to address how believers ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, the butchers of truth. And secondly, to stop false teachers from leading believers astray from the pure simplicity of the gospel. Paul understands what his son Timothy is up against in the ministry and wastes no time in helping him to confront the issues head on. To get rid of any and all teaching that is contrary to sound doctrine. 
And so while writing this letter to young Timothy, he bursts out into a thanksgiving praise as he shares his testimony of coming to know Christ. It is interesting, Pat, that you mentioned earlier about gratitude and testimony. It's confirmation. And as we conclude our series, our Christmas series, I want to bring our attention to meditate on this climactic thought. Jesus came to save a world of sinners. I believe I will testify. In the words of the Apostle Paul, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners and of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Jesus came to save a world of sinners. I believe I will testify. If we're going to look at Jesus coming to save a world of sinners, of whom is Paul is saying, I am the worst. We need to look at Paul's past experience. Secondly, Paul's purposeful example. And thirdly, Paul's present exaltation of Christ. First, let's look at Paul's past experience in verse 12 through 14. I thank him who has given me strength, Paul testifies, that Christ Jesus our Lord judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul's past experience provokes an outburst of deep gratitude for Jesus saving him and appointing him to the ministry. This was Paul's personal expression of thanksgiving. The moment he starts to think about his past, he starts to thank. Anybody start to think about your past? You start to think. And you start to praise God. First, he testifies here for Christ's enablement. He gave me strength. I thank him who has given me strength. Elsewhere, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The scripture says that while we were yet without sin, without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Secondly, Paul notes that God declared him faithful. He does not say here that he faithful and God rest, recognized it. But rather, God judged me faithful. Like when we place our faith in Jesus, he declares us righteous by faith. Christ appointed him. Paul opens this letter with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul did not have an entitlement mentality. He knew that he was undeserving of this position as an apostle. That's why he penned these words here. 
He starts with a personal gratitude for salvation and crescendos into an amazing doxology. And as Paul marvels at the magnitude of the gospel committed to him, considering his past, the reason is because Paul is bursting with deep gratitude because his past rages. Paul was honest about his past. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. To capture Paul's excitement here, you need a snapshot of his former life as a Pharisee. He was known as Saul of Tarsus from Asia Minor. Paul testifies in Philippians chapter 3, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. He was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest to the Jewish law. He was so zealous that he harshly persecuted the church. And he says, as for righteousness, he found that he was blameless in his mind. You see, Saul received the finest education in Judaism, sitting at the seat of Gamaliel, who was recognized as a premier teacher in Judaism, Acts chapter 22. And although Saul was a brilliant man and well-educated, his mind was blinded from the truth, and he was completely lost and dead in his sins. Paul, being honest about his past, said that I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. This is an interesting word here in the Greek. It actually means he was an insulter, an injurious person. One who got pleasure out of seeing others harm. Wow. Literally, Paul, or Saul here, was a man of violence in his past. In fact, he watched as Stephen, a, a, a devout follower of Jesus, was being stoned to death as his life was being slipped out of his body, Saul gave approval to his execution as he watched his persecutors lay their feet, their clothes at his feet. Amen. Acts chapter 8 opens with these words, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 tells us, gives us a detailed description of Paul's uh, radical conversion experience and call to the ministry. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any, he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man was ruthless. He was ruthless. He was so wild in his behavior that Luke uses a word picture here depicting Saul acting like a wild animal attacking his prey. Saul was ravaging the church, the scripture says, breathing out threats. 
And for some strange reason, he thought that he was doing God a favor by getting rid of the church. Which Paul was beyond loss, or saw at the time was beyond loss and without hope, but God. But God. He says, but I receive mercy. Does anybody have a but God experience? But I receive mercy. And as I meditated on these words, it jolted my memory back to the time when I was a teenager, lost in my own sin in my B.C. days. Thinking back to the time I wanted nothing to do with Jesus because I didn't want to be held accountable to him. So I avoided him. But God. But God. Isn't it amazing as I started to think about my past and how many years I've been saved now, rarely does it dawn on me and on us that if it wasn't for the grace of God and the mercy of God, I would have been wiped out a long time ago. I believe I will testify. Have you ever sat back and reflected, wow, God, you delivered me from that? That was the Apostle Paul. I get it. Not everyone has the Apostle Paul's testimony. Some of you may have grown up in the church. But you had a clear break with your past. It wasn't dramatic. But behind the scenes, it was miraculous. I believe I will testify. Paul's past was outrageous. But God's grace was overwhelming. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I thank God for the magnificence, he says, of his mercies and the magnitude of his grace. You recall that dramatic, powerful encounter Paul had with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. It was a sheer act of grace. He says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In essence, Paul was, was saying here that I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know who I was doing it against. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, that as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. No doubt, Paul was sincere. He thought he was serving God and doing him a favor by getting rid of Christians. But after coming to know Christ, he realized how sincerely wrong he was. And when he collided with Jesus on a Damascus road, his whole life changed. Verse 6 in chapter 9, Jesus says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do next. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but didn't see anyone. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. It's amazing that God, if he wants you, he will stop you in your tracks. 
Because he is sovereign. He is sovereign. You can run from God, but you cannot hide from him. Adam, where are you? Eventually, Paul's sight was restored with a new set of eyes now for Christ and his church. Paul's dramatic transformation was so incredible that Christ's followers had a hard time receiving and accepting his conversion. They thought it wasn't real at first because it was an amazing transformation. So sweet and amazing is this encounter with Jesus that John Newton wrote to him, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Paul says, I receive mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The question is, what is mercy? It is the Greek word ileo. It means that God extends help and compassion for the consequences of our sin. Mercy is defined as God not giving us what he knows we deserve. Paul said it in this way in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. The but God factor. Yet Paul's experience, Paul experienced more than mercy. Back in our text here, verse 14, Paul testified, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Whatever I am now, it is all because God has poured out such kindness and grace on me. God's grace is his undeserved kindness. There's something so extravagant about God's grace, isn't it? God's grace is what provokes repentance in us. It is what draws us to God. And even though grace comes in ample supply, there's nothing cheap about it. Amen? It's a grace that demands discipleship. It's a grace that saves us, but also sanctifies us. It's extravagant in, in its scope, reckless in its pursuit, and astonishing in its results. By all standards of the moral code, Cain should have been wiped out when he murdered his brother Abel. But God... In his mercy. David committing adultery with Bathsheba should have been stoned to death based on the law. But God, in his mercy, the prodigal son who wasted everything should have been cut off from his father. But God, his father, the woman caught in adultery should have been executed as the law demanded. But God gave mercy. Mercy is God restraining back what he knows we deserve as just punishment for our sins. But grace, by contrast, is God giving us what we don't deserve. His goodness, his undeserved kindness, his merit that cannot be earned. Grace is not some abstract thing that's out there. God's grace is God giving us 
himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Grace can simply stand for God's riches at Christ's expense. One writer said that grace means God deals with his people not on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of his goodness and generosity. I'm reminded of that powerful statement Pastor Tim preached about last week. He said that if God gave us what we deserve, we would have nothing left. Isn't that so true? Amen. It is interesting, as I was doing the research, nearly 100 out of 154 of the New Testament occurrences of this word grace are found in Paul's letters. Grace is found in all 13 of Paul's letters and heavenly clustered in Romans 23 times. It is not surprising, though, that Paul opens this letter in his salutation with grace and closes this letter in chapter 6 with grace. Paul was so radically transformed by the grace of God that grace was the theme of his life. And when we understand the depth of our salvation in Christ and what he has accomplished for us at Calvary, grace becomes the theme of our lives. William Henderson said that God's grace is his active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserve the greatest punishment. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the ultimate test of our spirituality is a measure of our amazement at the grace of God. There's so many beautiful aspects to God's grace. Paul used a word picture to capture the overwhelming nature of it in his own life. He said, but I received grace because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflow for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here for overflow can be translated to abound over and beyond, to superabound. Grace is superabundantly in supply. Grace is his all-encompassing, undeserved favor, overflowing like a river with waves that are crashing in on you one after another. You see, God is deliberately and unceasingly turning the tides of his undeserved kindness toward us, overflowing one wave of his kindness after another. Not just in Paul's life, but in our lives. It was Robert Murray McChaney that said that the unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again, and you will never come to the bottom of its steps. Paul said, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as Carrie Tim Boom liked to say, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. Doesn't matter how deep you are in your midst, God's love runs deep. Just like water, it seeks the lowest place. 
In other words, God has more grace than we have sin. Our sins are in finite numbers, but God's grace is infinite because God is infinite. Total all the billions of people on the planet from past, present, and future, and total all of their sins in the trillions. And God has more grace. Now, does this mean that I get to keep on sinning? Paul said, God forbid. How can anyone who died to sin live any longer in it? Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down. It fights to unfound. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Yeah, I wish I could sing that song. Paul expressed God's grace overflow with faith and love. It's amazing that God poured out his heart, poured out his love into Paul's heart, and he pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The one who was, who had a hatred for Christ in his church, has now a remarkable capacity to love Christ in his church. Paul remembers the Lord Jesus on the Damascus road telling him, that Jesus told him, I must show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And oh boy, did Paul suffer. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's past experience provoked a deep sense of gratitude because God turned a persecutor into a preacher, an opponent into an apostle. But secondly, let's look at Paul's purposeful example here. Paul's purposeful example reveals Christ's greatest rescue mission. He came to save a world of sinners, and Paul was one of the worst. At the center of Paul's thoughts, sandwiched in between his thanksgiving and his doxology, are these powerful words, words that capture the heart of the gospel in a short and impactful way. And as you read these words, you will notice how he sets up the seriousness of Christ's purpose statement. As Paul testified to the saving work of Christ, he's inferring here, take this to heart, fully believe it and trust it, take it all in, because if you do, it's going to change everything in your life. Paul is saying, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Are you ready? That Christ came into the world to save sinners and of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. King Jesus, our rescuer, came. He came. God came as Jesus. And you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came into the world that he created. All people, places, and things were made by him and for him and are being held together by him. He came into the world. He did not merely change locations. He descended from the lofty heights of his glory. It was a change of realm and dimension. It was a descent from eternity into time. His pursuit for our salvation was fierce. 
He traveled 42 generations through the line of David. He climbed down into human skin, born of the Virgin Mary, took on the form of a bondservant, came in the likeness of mankind, humbling himself with, with extraordinary humiliation, enduring death on the cross to rescue us. And is this greatest Rescue mission of all times unfolding in these eight verses. And as we struggled in sin, in separation from God, distressed by darkness, sinking deeper in our fallen state, gasping for the life that God intended for us to live, unconscious of his existence, didn't care less about his commandments. He climbed down into our mess, condescending deeper and deeper into our realm of sin and misery. Some poetically called it, when heaven kissed earth. Oh, how could we ever plumb the depths of his love for us? That Christ would go that far, that he would stoop that low, that he would take on our sin, that he would absorb God's wrath on our behalf. The theologians call it the incarnation. But I like what the songwriter, he simplifies it. He says that you came from heaven to earth to show us the way from the earth to the cross, our debts you paid. And yet John tells us that Jesus came to his own people and they didn't even recognize him. In fact, they rejected him. But to all who did receive him, to them he has given the right to become sons and daughters of God, even to those who believe in his name. The God-man's intention was very clear here. Jesus, he came to save sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not for people who have it all together that's perfect, because you're not. He came to call sinners. The Son of Man came to seek that which lost, was lost. Individuals who were made in God's image, the epitome of his creation took a tragic turn through the bloodline of Adam and Eve and became marred by sin and as a result, children of wrath. But he came into the world to save sinners, the beauty of God's greatest rescue operation was towards sinners who were bent on self, hearts deceitfully wicked, fell into honor God as God and would rather substitute ourselves for him. He came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, and of whom I am the worst, he testifies. It was Jack Miller that said that we're more sinful than we ever dare imagine and more loved than we ever dare hope. Our sins may surprise us immensely, but it is never a surprise to God. Our sin blinds us to ourselves and causes us to think that we're we're much better than others, and even much better than we really are. But in reality, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, drastically short of God's glory. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, Asian or Hispanic, rich or poor, male or female, politically red, blue or green, from the main line or soup line, from Penn State or the state pen. All of us are equally sinners before God and equally in need of the Savior. But something so 
astonishing happens when Jesus saves us. Like the Apostle Paul, he opens our eyes and we see how sinful we really are and how wonderful the Savior really is. We're more sinful than we ever dare imagine and more loved than we ever dare hope. That's why the cross is the solution. It meets the demands of God's holiness, justice, and love in one setting at, the, at Calvary. It has been said that the Christian church is a society of sinners. It is the only society in the world in which its membership is based upon the single qualification that its members should be unworthy of its membership. Wow. If you think that you are disqualified for salvation, you are the perfect candidate for it. It's time to come to Jesus. You know why? Because God has a soft spot for rebels. His love is radical. If you don't believe me, look at Saul of Tarshish. A man that we now know as the Apostle Paul, who God used powerfully to write one-third of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Paul said, I believe I will testify. Christ came to save a world of sinners and of whom I am chief. Paul ranks himself as least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians and less of all the saints and here as chief of sinners. Paul's purposeful example not only reveals Christ's rescue mission, but it also reveals Christ's perfect patience. All of us know what it's like to have our patience tested. My wife did just a moment ago with the little one. She had to take him in the overflow room. You know what I'm talking about. You have kids. Or maybe it's just me because I'm a new parent. Our patience wears thin. But Christ's patience is perfect. It's flawless. His patience is unlimited. God in Christ is very patient with us because he knows that we are weak and that we're made of dust. Christ's patience is inexhaustible. You will never get to the bottom of it, ever. His patience is long-suffering. Isn't that so true? And you learn that when you become a parent. You learn that very quickly. But our patience run out. But his will never run out. And in the moment, you will hear a powerful testimony of one of our dear brothers, Philip, who has come to know Christ as his Savior, and he will be baptized. If at any given point you hear something in this service that is tugging on your heart, trust Christ. He is patiently waiting for you. If you're watching online, he is patiently waiting for you to respond to him. The moment you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Paul is basically saying here, he's implying here, no excuses. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, I am a living illustration of Christ's perfect patience toward believers, even unbelievers. He is living proof that God can save anyone. No one is beyond God's reach. 
no matter how far you are or what you into or how bad it really is, Jesus can reach you and Jesus can rescue you. I don't know who I'm talking to. Paul's heart was filled with so much gratitude and praise for Christ that he repeats this statement, but I received mercy for this reason. That as a foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And as a boy was standing on the beach with hundreds of starfish washed ashore, swept up by the waves, stranded on the shore, left there to die. This boy is standing there throwing the starfish back into the water one by one so they can be saved. And the grown-up looks from the boardwalk for a minute, looks at the boy, and yells out, you can't possibly throw all those starfish back in that water. You can stand there all night, and it won't matter. The boy looks around at the starfish and at that man and throws that starfish back in the water and says, but it matters to this one. It matters to this one. I may not be able to save all of them, but it matters to this one. Jesus said this, that enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in there. But the gate, the true gate, the way, the truth, and the life is narrow, and the way is hard, is difficult, that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's a sobering thought that not everybody will be saved. But yet it's our responsibility to join God in his greatest rescue mission to reach people who don't know Christ. Paul's purposeful example leaves us without issues. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace, not even the one who is known as public enemy number one in Jerusalem, Saul of Tarshish. Look at the king's heart for us and his patience for us. Dane Ortland, in that book, Meek and Lowly Heart, that's over there to my left, he says, you cannot present a reason to Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. You can't. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if our relationships get damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out and the walls go up. With Christ, though, our sins and our weakness are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Nothing but coming to him is required first at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we're with him upon death. Paul's experience and purposeful example leads finally to his present exaltation. In verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How fitting is it for Paul to conclude his thoughts on Jesus' perfect patience and rescue mission towards sinners? 
All of it started with Paul's personal gratitude for salvation and crescendos into this doxology. The Greeks used the term doxa to denote this response, a response that is due to God. Doxa is the root Greek word. In fact, it's the root word that actually means a song or expression of praise and worship. Doxology actually comes from two Greek words, doxa meaning praise and logos meaning logical message. How appropriate that this means that doxology you literally can be defined as the logical expression of the emotion of praise. It is the head and the heart merging together in worship through doxology. And as Paul carefully thought about his past and the grace that overflowed to his account, he penned these words with his heart and his mind merged together into this place of explosive worship, and he turns his eyes toward Jesus and says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it good to know that Jesus Christ is the King of the ages? not limited by time because he's eternal, cannot die because he's immortal, cannot be seen because he's invisible, one day we will see him face to face. The only God, the only true God, and there is none other. To him be the highest honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Now we ask you, Lord God, that you will bless the testimony of our dear brother as Tim comes up to introduce him. In Jesus' name we pray, and the people of God say amen.